Well, 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 wrestling fans, welcome. Welcome to those of you watching live on twitch.tv slash wetmewrestling. Welcome to those of you watching the video podcast on YouTube right now. Do I look lovely today? I got my hair cut just for you guys. I got my haircut just for people who watch the live show or the video podcast. If you listen to this podcast on Spotify, if you listen to it on Apple, if you listen to it on Amazon, if you listen to it on Google, whatever your favorite podcast platform is, this sexy hair isn't for you. This is just for the people watching me live on Twitch.tv and watching the recorded version on YouTube. It's just one of the benefits you get. Coming to the live show Tuesdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific. Today is September 5th, and we are rocking and rolling on our second ever episode of Rope Break, a pro wrestling podcast hosted by me. I am the Greg Flynn. I'm the one and only. I'm the man giving wrestling fans a bad name. I'm the man. Coming after AEW. Coming after the stupidest moves in professional wrestling. Coming after the double clothesline. And I'm pissing off every AEW mark in the world while I'm doing it. Whether it's 82,000 British marks at Wembley. Or whether it's 20,000 Chicagoan marks. (laughs) American marks. At the United Center in Chicago, Illinois this past weekend for All Out. I'm going to break down All Out. I'm going to break down WWE Payback today. And we're going to compare all three pay-per-views later today in order. We're going to rank them. We're going to determine which was the best out of the three. All In, All Out, and of course WWE Payback. We're going to talk about some of my favorite matches it's a stack show. We're going to talk about Wrestle Dream. And we are going to have a book review 2.0. I made some mistakes. There were some clerical errors last show that we need to correct regarding the book review. So I wanted to come out with book review as the first segment today. And don't forget if you're watching on twitch.tv during the live show, get your comments, get your questions in, and I will read them during the breaks. When we come back from the breaks, rather, I will address them, and uh, that's an opportunity. You don't have to leave a comment on the TikTok clips. You can tell me straight to my face just how stupid I am. You can live the life of my wife and children and tell me I'm a damn fool straight to my face. Doesn't that sound lovely? Mm, Isn't that a great opportunity? But I wanted to open with book review today because of those mistakes during our first book review. And then something went and happened. It's been a quiet week in the wrestling world. Just, you know, three pay-per-views in in like a seven, eight-day period. And then, oh yeah, oh, there was this other, there was this other little thing that just sort of happened that, you know, just, just this minor little, you know, if you, you know, you're plugged into the papers and you're plugged into TikTok and the dirt sheets and you're watching and you're on Twitter and Instagram. You may have missed this one. A certain AEW megastar has been fired. 
A megastar by the name of CM Punk released by Tony Khan in AEW because of a fight that happened before All In. We didn't talk about this. There was some news about this breaking before the first podcast a week ago, and I didn't talk about it then, and I'm not going to talk about it too much, to be totally honest right now. I'm going to break it down a little bit, give us some groundwork, and then my opinion, and then we'll move on to book review, because this is a stacked show. I I don't know if I can do two hour solo podcasts every week like I did last week. That's only a sometimes snack. <laughs> Two hours of ranting about wrestling is just a sometimes snack. We have a real life to attend to. And watching three pay-per-views in a seven-day period is a sometimes snack. I've been watching so much wrestling. But back on topic, CM Punk. Uh, so here's my understanding of the situation as far as Uh, just looking at All In as an isolated event. I know that there's a huge uh, bag of baggage, if you will, when you talk about CM Punk. Um, You talk about his time in WWE, and now you talk about his time in AW. It seems to be that controversy and drama is following the man everywhere he goes. And I am not going to deny that as I break this down. However, I think there are more sides to the story than the side we got from Tony Khan. So my understanding is that at some point in about the last six months, maybe longer, actually, I I, I need to get my timeline on this detail straight. But CM Punk was asked to work with and almost mentor Jungle Boy Jack Perry from AEW. He was asked to work with a variety of the young wrestlers, I believe. And and the reason I believe that is because Tony Khan has come out and said how grateful he is to CM Punk for the work he's done with young wrestlers. So we know it's a thing, obviously, with with his experience and, and all he brings to the table. Uh, as a performer and a wrestler, you, it's a natural fit that you would bring him in and have him work with the younger, younger wrestlers. Excuse me. So allegedly he's working with Jungle Boy Jack Perry more directly in some, in some perceived fashion. He's been called by name. He's supposed, to, he's supposed to be a big brother. He's supposed to be a leader. He's supposed to be a mentor. And in the buildup to All In, at some point, again, timelines for me are gray. Maybe you can find this out. But Here's what matters. CM Punk recommended some safer maneuvers for Jungle Boy and Hook during their FTW championship match on the buy-in of All In. They were giving each other pile drivers on top of a limousine, just acting like real hooligans. And the grizzled veteran CM Punk, uh, my understanding, had mentioned to Jungle Boy uh, some opportunities to play things a little safer. Uh, and that maybe he was taking some risks he didn't need to take. Um, this is kind of like, I guess, kind of a bird's eye take of what maybe that conversation would have been like. Um, I'm drawing upon, uh, frankly, a lot of wrestling books. You guys know we do the book review. We're about to get to our next book review. We're almost there, actually, because I don't want to talk about CM Punk all day. 
but it's very common for wrestlers to be working together in this way. It's very common for the older wrestlers to be telling the young wrestlers to not get themselves killed. And it's very common for the young wrestlers to be like, if I want to kill myself, I'm going to fucking do it, old man. Because they got a name to make for themselves. They, they don't have the money that a CM Punk has. They don't have the fame, etc., etc., etc. So they go out with a chip on their shoulder, and that's what Jungle Boy did. He was giving Hook, and Hook was giving him the business all over a limousine with real glass. And that's what, uh, not CM Punk, excuse me, that's what Jungle Boy, Jack Perry, said into the camera. He said, it's real glass. Take that or something. It's real glass. I forget the exact line. It's real glass, not for softies or something. I don't know. But he kind of taunted the idea that there was anything to play safe there, uh, perhaps given how he sees himself as a tough professional wrestler, etc., etc. So then he goes back after his match, after talking shit and making kind of passive-aggressive comments that were directed towards CM Punk's recommendations of playing it safe, um, he makes those comments to shit on CM Punk, and CM Punk is about to go on for his match next. And he's pissed off that this young hotshot is talking shit about him and his recommendation to do things that may cause you to stay alive longer. Uh, and so what does CM Punk do? Well, he does what ang any angry wrestler does. is he, does, he takes action that may cause Jungle Boy to stay alive for not so long. They get into a fight. They get into a shoving match, allegedly CM Punk, with the uh, front face lock applied onto Jungle Boy. This is all true. I mean, this is what's being reported. And the shoving match uh, uh, makes its way, and I guess the front face lock makes its way over to where Tony Khan is producing the show, and monitors are getting shoved onto Tony Khan, and it's chaos, and it's bedlam. And a fight breaks out, and th this is CM Punk, and he's about to go on and have technically the opening match of All In. They've already had a few matches, but it's technically the first match of the show, the official show, if you will. And uh, allegedly CM Punk at this point, after the chaos, starts screaming at Tony Khan to fire him. Go ahead and fire me. It's worth noting, I feel like, that a week prior to these events, backtracking a little... There was supposed to be a sit-down, work-it-out meeting between CM Punk and the Elite. And the reports are that that meeting was canceled by the Elite, like the day or the day before of the meeting. They just hung out CM Punk to dry, basically. And then when CM Punk flew to London, England for the big show... He was given a number, is my understanding, for his car service from AW, Human Relations, Talent Management, whoever's doing that. And the number just bounced back. And next thing you know, there's pictures uh, on social media of the biggest wrestling superstar at the biggest wrestling show ever riding the train to get to his hotel and to get to the stadium. And there are Marks taking pictures of CM Punk. And he's just politely smiling like, yeah, I'm here too. I'm a human too. It had been a rough week for CM Punk. And he was being, I don't, we don't know what he was doing in response. We know his final culminated response. 
but we don't know what he's responding. But but point being, it had been a lot of snubs right in the face of the guy that is kind of supposed to be their ace. He's kind of supposed to be their go-to. He's kind of supposed to be their megastar. And they kind of just keep fucking it up. And they kind of just keep shoving him this weird, passive-aggressive middle finger. And it might not even be that. But it's easy to see how it could be interpreted that way. And when you're paying this guy that much money, and it's your belief and your internal metrics and your merchandise sales are telling you, and merchandise sales for punk, way beyond anything else in AEW. So when you have all that, it's not. It doesn't need to be passive aggressive. It can just be stupid, and that can be bad enough. That can be bad enough. You can you can just be incompetent. You don't have to be mean, right? And that's the thing that I think we're seeing with Tony Khan in all this. I nobody is claiming he's mean, or nobody is claiming that he's doing anything to like maybe pick at this scab. But he's just unwilling to do anything to heal it. And sometimes that takes kind of a firmer hand. You know, sometimes you have to be firm with yourself and say, quit picking that scab. You know, or you got to be firm with a kid and be like, if you can, I have kids. You have to tell them when they're young to quit picking at this scab. And it feels like they don't know how to quit picking at this scab. And they kept picking at it and picking at it and picking at it. And then it bled everywhere because that's what professional wrestlers do. They bleed everywhere. And so CM Punk bled all over the show. He bled all over Tony Khan. He bled all over AEW. He made a fool of himself. And he made a fool of AEW. And as I watch all this unfold, as somebody who's been watching wrestling my whole life, somebody who reads all these books, who's just obsessed with the topic, obsessed with the stories, obsessed with the unique personalities, that's what I see is unique personalities and the type of personalities this sport draws. And then a guy at the top who didn't understand that a guy at the top in Tony Khan, who doesn't understand that he might be attracting uh, employees who are going to be a little bit more prone to outbursts. He's not understanding that these men and these people uh, have massive egos. I mean, CM Punk has driven serious business in the wrestling industry, in the wrestling business, for a while. Um, He knows what his merchandise sales are. He knows about the CM Punk chants that shows that he's not at. He knows what the United Center is feels about him in Chicago, Illinois, his hometown. And he's had to earn those things in his life. And he's fucking proud of it. And what I was explaining to my wife while she was ignoring me as I was explaining all this on a walk yesterday, which is that if you had done the same thing to Hulk Hogan, if some hotshot had come out and said some shit to the camera about Hulk Hogan, if some hotshot had said some shit about Bruiser Brody, if some hotshot had some shit to say about the Von Erics back in the day, and I think you can get more modern with this, if some hotshot had some shit to say about Triple H in 2006, you better believe that 
whoever was being shit talked about, the money man, the draw, the megastar would be waiting for that hot shot. And if a front face lock was all he got, he might feel thankful. Because Hulk Hogan knew that not only if you, sh- if you shit on the ace, if you shit on the big man, if you shit on Hulk, if you shit on CM Punk, you're not just, you're not getting yourself over. You're not doing anything to help yourself. You're just hurting the big man. And by hurting the big man, you're hurting everyone else involved. Everyone who's riding the coattails. Every little indie wrestler who gets to be a part of this show. Nobody at Wembley bought tickets for you, Jungle Boy. A lot of those motherfuckers bought tickets hoping, believing, knowing that CM Punk was going to make an appearance and be on the card. And the same may be true about the Elite and Kenny Omega. They have some serious fans. And I'm kind of a fan of the Elites. I'm not a hater. I'm Anyway, we'll go down. But the point is, this guy is your guy. This guy's your quarterback, your superstar, all-star, pro bowler quarterback. And you have like a third-string slot receiver talking shit about him publicly and creating problems with him publicly. And now some quarterbacks are total ego maniac douchebags. But you're not going to win a lot of games without a superstar quarterback. And you have to find that line as a coach, as a leader, and in wrestling as a booker. And I feel like we're watching Tony Khan. I mean, to say he's incapable of finding that line is an understatement. I feel like he, he he's coming across... Oh, I'm going to use a term that sounds harsh, but it's just the way I speak. He's coming across like a limp-dicked bitch. He's saying he's fearing for his life. I mean, how many of the wrestlers at All In love Tony Khan and feel incredibly indebted to him? And he would have been surrounded by big, beefy men who kind of owe their livelihood to him. But because one of the older, skinnier ones in CM Punk is getting riled up, you were afraid for your life? I, I, I'm, I'm reading these old wrestling books, and that just doesn't happen ever. There are no stories of wrestlers scared for their life because of interfacing with other wrestlers at shows. They've been scared of fans in certain environments. They've been scared of each other in certain certain situations. Uh, but at shows, in this sort of thing, it's just not ever happening. Nobody else has a story like that. There's no... And look at the names he was running around with. I'm going to use this example. There's no examples of Eric Bischoff fearing for his life in, in late 90s WCW shows. And dear God, go watch a clip of late 90s WCW. How much fucking cocaine do you think there could be in that locker room? Bischoff could handle it. Vince McMahon has handled this for a long time. Vince Sr. handled it for a long time. Tony Khan is struggling in this context, I feel like. He doesn't have a hammer 
ooh, that sounded bad after calling him a limp-dicked bitch a moment ago. But he doesn't have a hammer. He's not stepping up to be that hammer. He's not stepping up to be um, an emotional leader in the locker room, which isn't to say, like, in a way, he, I think he thinks he is. Maybe he thinks that by having emotional relationships, he's being an emotional leader. But a connection with somebody, like the way, you know, you've heard the way, I've heard the way, like, FTR just rave about their connection with Tony Khan. CM Punk used to. Uh, the Bucks, there's a variety of guys who talk about how uh, Tony Khan remembers your kids' names, your family's names, and seems to genuinely care about these things. But the problem that Tony Khan has, and this is it, and then we're going to move on, is that he's not leading these men. He's, he's not taking these relationships and then saying, that's all fine and well, but this is what we are doing while we're here, and this is where we are going with this thing. This is a business. Tony Khan might, and he might not say this himself, he might not fully realize it himself. Tony Khan doesn't have to care if AEW flops. It really won't affect anything in his life. If the WWF flopped at any point between what, 1965 and 2010, 2000, the Monday Night Wars, it, it was going to have a massive impact on the guys at the top. Vince McMahon, the guy who was driving the thing, he was the one with the most skin in the game. And when you look at the way wrestlers get into uh, main event picture, how do you get signed by WWE? How, what do you have to go through to get signed by AEW? The wrestlers have way more skin in the game than Tony Khan does. Way more. I don't think it's the end of the world if they have more, if they've been through more, more experience, whatever. But Tony Khan lets the inmates run the asylum. And they all have egos, and they all have issues, and they're all trying to make a buck. And they got kids, and they got girlfriends and wives, and they have ambition, motherfucker. And they've been sleeping in cars for years just to have this opportunity. They've had their teeth fucking knocked in. They've been pile-drived on cement. They've done the indie shows. They've done the death matches. And... AEW and, and top-level professional wrestling may represent something to them that it can never mean to Tony Khan, having never experienced that, having never been through that, having never been immersed and surrounded by the boys, which is kind of what they're referred to. You call the locker room and wrestling the boys, as you do in many contexts. But Tony Khan not only has never been one of the boys, he's never really hung out with them until now. And I think he's trying to do it his way. And his way's not going to resonate with every professional wrestler. That's why CM Punk doesn't work there anymore. CM Punk doesn't not work there. Is that a sentence? He doesn't not work there because, and we've talked way more about CM Punk than I intended to. But CM Punk, this is the final point. He doesn't not work there because he's a pill. 
CM Punk is a pill, and he doesn't work there because Tony Khan can't handle those type of egos. So if another type of guy like that becomes available, why would he sign with AEW? If you have a potential ace who's a free agent, and I'm trying to think of a name, and I can't come up with one off the top of my head, but... I don't know, if a Kevin Owens, if a Roman Reigns, if if somebody big from WWE became truly available and you had a unique opportunity, you know what you're getting yourself into with Tony Khan and AEW. And I feel like they're just backing themselves into a corner as being this glammed up indie promotion. And that's going to be fun, and that can be fun, and I had fun, and All Out was an incredible, incredible fucking show. I'm going to give all my opinions on All Out in a minute. But that's enough on CM Punk for now. Those are my thoughts. Those are my feelings based off of my experience. I think that CM Punk is a pill, a drama queen, uh, and an egomaniac. And I think that in the right context, he and a lot of people would have made a lot of money and had a lot of good wrestling matches. And instead, this is where we are. It wasn't meant to be. It was oil and water in the end. I told you why I think they're oil and water. I'm curious why you think they're oil and water. You can leave a comment on YouTube. Leave a comment in the podcast notes. I like to read the comments and, of course, comments on Instagram and TikTok. But moving ahead... We have a few uh, clerical errors to get to with book review. And then we're going to take our first break and and move into WWE payback. But on the last show on book review, I made a rookie podcasting mistake. I've been reading Have a Nice Day by Mick Foley. And there was a small issue. And if you're watching this podcast, you're seeing me hold up the book right now. And last week, I held up the book and I talked about the book. But I never said the book by name. And this is a fucking podcast. And I was so embarrassed when I realized that I never said the book by name. This is Mankind's book. You know him as Mankind. And this book was written, I believe, in the year 2000. 2000, 2001. He was still working when he wrote this book, which is a really cool vantage point to read one of these books from. A lot of these books are from old, retired guys. He's still actively working and at the top of his game when he wrote this book. Uh, And it's just chock full of amazing stories Uh, And I've gone a lot deeper in it since last week. I'm going to give a full book recommendation on Have a Nice Day some other time, though. I just wanted to make that uh, uh, mistake. I wanted to confess my mistake and and right my wrongs. It's Have a Nice Day by Mick Foley, and it's phenomenal. Um, And we'll talk more about that some other time. I'm going to be finishing it probably this week. So that'll be a good time to come full circle. But what's going on right now in professional wrestling, if you've been paying attention to Monday Night Raw, is that Gunther, the Ring General, that was a pretty good one, the Ring General, the Ring General, Gunther, is about to become the longest reigning intercontinental champion in the history of that belt. And I thought that I had 
the perfect book, the perfect wrestling book for such an occasion. So so late last night while I was planning this podcast, I was like, no, we're not going to talk about Mick Foley. I'm going to fix that air, but we're not going to talk about him. We're going to talk about, and this is a cool one, the first ever intercontinental champion in the WWF, a man by the name of Pat Patterson. And I'm holding up his book, but I'm not going to say the name of it. No, I'm kidding. I'm holding up his book, Accepted. And the reason it's called Accepted is because, and it's in the subtitle, How the First Gay Superstar Changed the WWE. Pat Patterson was one of the best working professional wrestlers in the world uh, from about 1970, uh, 1965 maybe, until about 1980, 1982 is when his most memorable match happened against Sergeant Slaughter. And after that, he started fading more into commentary. And if you're my age or older, you may remember him as one of Vince McMahon's stooges on Raw in the late 90s. Pat Patterson, the first ever intercontinental champion. And I didn't know I didn't know a lot about him in general when I picked up this book. I knew that he was sort of one of these people and one of these characters uh, in professional wrestling that everybody loved and everybody respected. And so when I saw that and knew that, I, I knew I had to find out why. And when I read the book, I discovered it. Um, he is just about as humble and as joyful as they come. He loved wrestling. He loved life. Speaking in the past tense, unfortunately, Pat Patterson passed away in 2020. But to come on topic and to share a story from the book, he was the first ever intercontinental champion. And I'm going to share the story with you. It happened in 1972 when he was fighting the then- WWF champion Bob Backlund in the main event of at Madison Square Garden and they fought not one not two not three but four nights in a row selling out Madison Square Garden as the main event now let me give you some context for this You go to a show and you see Pat Patterson fight Bob Backlund and it's so amazing that they're able to run it back the next day with a new match, a new finish, a new result. And they continued the story because the story was that Bob Backlund was the WWF champion at the time and that Pat Patterson was coming in as the challenger. And Bob Backlund at this point had never lost. And so what they did was Pat Patterson beat him the first two nights by disqualification. So he didn't become WWF champion, but he scored the first two ever wins over Bob Backlund in those matches. And then he beat him again the third night And it wasn't until a steel cage match the fourth night that Backlund won. I'm blanking on what the finish was, but he didn't win by pinfall, which means in four matches, the champ was never able to pin Pat Patterson. Now, during all this, they decide somewhat arbitrarily to award Pat Patterson the new, then new, 
Intercontinental Championship to add a level of prestige to these matches, to add a wrinkle, to add story to it. He's beating the champ, but he's not getting the belt. He's beating him three nights in a row, but he's not getting the belt. It's a, it's an injustice or something wrong here. So Pat Patterson was then awarded the Intercontinental Championship without ever having to really beat anyone for it, although he beat Bob Backlund for it. And WWE for years after that uh, would say that he won the belt in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and boy, that pronunciation was terrible. Boy, I sound American there. Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. They would claim forever that he won it there. And actually, this is a perfect ending point. He would chuckle in his book about the fact that he had never even been to Rio and that whenever he had to say that that's where he won it, he couldn't pronounce it particularly well. So now we are bonded in our uh, inability to speak the language. Although Pat Patterson's first language was French. He's from he's from Montreal, so uh, he has a better excuse than I. Wait, no, Rio is... Okay, we are off the rails, wrestling fans. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about WWE Payback. And we're going to break down a few of the matches. We're going to score the matches on my 1 to 10 match rating scale. And I'm going to tell you what I thought the best match of the show and the best match of the weekend was. I'm going to give you a little teaser. We have our first ever match on the show that's going to get above an 8 out of 10 rating. I have a, I have a very strict rating system. So we will get to that next after the break, thank you for joining me, the Greg Flynn, on Rope Break. I ain't never missed my cue. Never, ever, ever missed my cue. And we are back. With Rope Break, a pro wrestling podcast hosted by me, none other than the Greg Flynn. I am the E-Fed King. I am the Rat King. And I am about to break down WWE Payback from this weekend using what I would say is already the most notorious match rating system in the world. Wrestling marks everywhere have been telling me since our first podcast that I'm just way too hard on these matches. Oh, my favorite little wrestlers, you're so mean to them. You made fun of my favorite move, the double clothesline. We'll get to you later, double clothesline, when we're talking about AEW. But right now, we're talking about WWE Payback. And I just want to say real quick that my match rating system, if, you, if you're unfamiliar, I score matches 1 to 10. And let me explain real quickly that the whole point is for there to never be a 10. The whole point of the concept is to include the idea <gasps> that nothing <gasps> is <gasps> perfect. There's not supposed to ever be a 10 out of 10 match. I won't ever give a match a 10 out of 10. 
Because I already know what it took Dave Meltzer 30 years to realize that I'm hating my fucking Dave because that's what I do every chance I get. But the point is, he had his little four-star system. It became a five-star system. It became a six-star system because I think he realized that you give yourself kind of nowhere to go if there is perfection in one fucking match. Like, if we just if we just go ahead and we say Steamboat Macho Man at WrestleMania 3 is a 10 out of 10, well, then we're done. Let's pack it up and go home. We found it. We have the perfect example of professional wrestling. We don't need to watch new matches. We already have it. We're done. And that's what I don't like about that, and that's what I do like about having a harsh rating system. So to break it down real quick, remember a 4 out of 10 to me is a serviceable TV match. It might be a match where you go for more and there's some flaws or there's some botches or issues. Or it might be a match where you don't go for more, but you faithfully execute a little babyface comeback and a finisher in a match that I enjoy. That's a 4 out of 10. A 6 out of 10 ups that for a pay-per-view level base match. And then when you get to 8 out of 10, you're starting to talk about High-quality pay-per-view main events, longer matches, stories, builds, things like that. And I teased earlier that we are about to have our first ever 8 out of 10 scored match on the show. I'm not going to spoil which match or which show it came from this weekend. But right now, we're moving into payback. And we'll just start hot when we talk about payback. No pun intended. Trish Stratus. Becky Lynch. Starting hot indeed. They had a cage match to end their feud that I understand was supposed to originally happen at SummerSlam. Although I don't remember it being a, a teased or built as a cage match at that time. Although I could be wrong about it. If it was meant to be a cage match, it should have happened at SummerSlam. It should have been the fucking main event. It should have been the main event at Payback. I'm going to blow my load early for Trish Stratus and Becky Lynch. That was a bad one. Don't giggle at that. But here's the thing. They really did have the match of the night and the match of the show. How many matches do you watch that have genuine gasp moments when Trish Stratus falls or fakes as if she's going to fall and her leg is hooked on the cage? That was a genuine moment where you're watching, and if you're paying attention for a brief second, is somebody about to fucking die? And she's got the leg hooked, and then you get the reward in a way that wrestling can offer you, which is, no, she's not going to die. She's just a fucking phenomenal athlete and performer. And now, now that you've seen her nearly die, we're going to go ahead and kill her by doing a superplex off of the fucking cage. The cage match with Trish Stratus and Becky Lynch was so fucking good. I think Becky Lynch is maybe the best women's wrestler in the world today. Um, And the example I'll give for this is the way she built the tension leading into this match. In the match, I felt like Trish was the one taking all the bumps and doing all the work. And her head... Her forehead after that match was all swollen and it was starting to get colored. It didn't look good. 
But to come back to Becky Lynch, she had me genuinely believing that she was just so fucking over having to deal with Trish Stratus. Like, I, I, I kind of think, like, she has me sold. I'm fucking marked out for it. Like, I really did believe that she was really fucking ready to move on to a new opponent and a new story. And that she was through with that. And the only downside, if you can call it that, to her having sold me on that so well was I thought the match could have the same energy. It was almost like she so sold her disgust too much, and maybe she really does feel that way and just happened to be a fucking professional who can put on an amazing match with another professional. I don't know, but that match was violent and beautiful and athletic. And back and forth, and you didn't necessarily know who was going to win. Becky did seem like that. In these moments, you always think the younger wrestler is going to be the one to win. Uh, Trish Stratus, who knows where her future is, although I've heard that she may be staying and feuding more and doing more. We'll find out. We're going to find out. She went on Raw last night. She went on Raw. I I watch Raw. Don't you come at me. I watch Raw. Uh, So we'll find out with regard to all that. But I thought that match was phenomenal. So here's my score for that match. That's a phenomenal match, and I give it a 7.1. I give Trish Stratus, Becky Lynch, a 7.1 out of 10. That is almost the highest match. That would have been higher than, I think, almost every match at All In. Uh, I thought it was fantastic, and it was just a great way to open the show. And I think anyone who's a fan of theirs in that moment, knowing the SummerSlam snub backstory in particular, if you were a fan of those two, uh, or at least one of them going into that, I mean, how rewarding was that as a as a WWE fan and potentially as a Lynch or Stratus fan? Um, and this is the last uh, thing I want to say about it which is Trish Stratus. I mean, let's call it what it is. She's a 47-year-old woman who's had two kids, who has a family, who took off years so that she could get pregnant and have a family. And now she's 47 years old getting superplexed off of a steel fucking cage. When 47-year-old male wrestlers do it, we don't stop talking about it it's amazing you know if sting fucking just like walks into the ring aew fans are like oh my god did you see what sting did what trish stratus did at her age not just at any age that's the thing what trish stratus did during that match and let's say it during her career was fucking phenomenal Breath, literally breathtaking, gasping as her head flails back on the cage, potentially falling to her doom. That was a great match. I loved it. I don't always love women's wrestling. I'm kind of open about that. It sometimes hits me a little weird. It just doesn't quite sit right always, and we can talk about that some other time. I'm not a hater. I've seen phenomenal women's matches, and this definitely, definitely was one of them. Another one of the matches I want to talk about was the tag team championship between Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and Judgment Day. I thought that was a, uh, I'm going to use this word, they'd probably hate me using it, but that was a super cute match. I know it was a fucking death match or hardcore, no rules, whatever match, and I know that they had the hockey gear, and I know 
that my man Kevin Owens was doing the swanton breaking through chairs. That shit was incredible. It was far more than cute. It was grisly and gruesome and violent. It was a phenomenal match. And it was a shock finish. I think. I, I didn't see Judgment Day winning this match at all. I mean, it crossed my mind, but when I saw the match and that that was going to be it, I kind of thought to myself, fuck, another loss for Finn Bat. Like, how many losses can Finn take here? Like, big losses, championship losses. Like, I know it's tag, but, like, who's going to take the pin? Like, what's what's going to happen here? And uh, I got Twitch chat open. Don't forget to come to a live show. Check us out on twitch.tv slash wetmeatwrestling and distract me during the podcast and get your questions in. Okay, we're minimized now. We're back on topic. The tag team match was phenomenal um, uh, and cute and fun. I'm trying to find my score for it on my whiteboard. I gave it a 6.1. I don't know. That seems a little harsh, but it was a fun bit. Boy, that's right on it. I mean, a 6 out of 10. What I said earlier, a fun, rewarding pay-per-view match with some nice spots and a surprise finish. It's not always my style of match. Uh, death matches and hardcore matches, although by the time we are done with this podcast, it will seem like it is. Uh, but there were a few of them over the weekend in my defense. So I enjoyed that, and I'm excited for Judgment Day. I'm super excited for Judgment Day. Uh, last night when we were watching Raw, I was like, Amanda, you got to get in here and see all these belts with the Judgment Day. There's six of them. Six belts in a briefcase. There's only four people, but there's six belts. Have you ever seen this many belts and briefcases? And now there's two briefcases. J.D. McDonough brought in a a briefcase as well. There's so many briefcases and belts. I would never fuck with Judgment Day. Nothing could ever take their pants down from around their waists with all this championship gold holding those pantaloons up. But for real, I think I think it's cool. I think it's a cool little spot for Judgment Day to look that daunting with those championship belts. Uh, it was a good luck, and they pulled it off well last night coming onto the scene. Uh, so I am excited. It's, I'm still excited for the tag belts. WWE doesn't always do a great job hooking you into the tag team championship, in my opinion. And the bloodline accomplished that. The Usos are the ones who accomplished that. And then they really just passed the torch to Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens, if we're being honest. So you kind of kept caring kind of from the equity that they had built up already. And they needed to do something to give it like a fresh jolt a little bit here. And they did. I was saying last week on the pod, they needed a shakeup. Judgment Day Tag Team Champions. Super cool. The last match I want to talk about, uh, at least in depth, uh, is the main event. Shinsuke Nakamura versus Seth Rollins. This was an interesting match. I, I liked it for telling a story. Um, this is kind of an example of like when I talk about like a base level match where you're going to have kind of straightforward storytelling and a babyface comeback. We're going to get our finishers and, and call it a day. This is kind of that, if you're curious what I mean by that. Now, it was a good match. It was it was better than that. But this, they kind of, they needed a story that Shinsuke could be a part of. I feel like his character has been a little weird. Uh, the last major thing I remember seeing him in was the Money in the Bank ladder match. And I feel like he just stuck out like a sore thumb in that context. 
Shinsuke Nakamura and strong style in general means something to me. And I'm a big mark for singles matches in particular. That kind of is becoming obvious on the podcast. And so a ladder match for Shinsuke Nakamura, he just was sort of there, like throwing his elbows and kicks that, like, if you're following him and you're following the style, you know that you're watching something theoretically a little bit different in a Shinsuke kick than a standard one. But that all fell flat during a fucking ladder match. However, in a championship match against wounded prey and Seth Rollins getting over this back injury, getting over this back pain just to show up for the night, just to try to grin and bear it and fight and defend that world heavyweight championship belt, now we're cooking. They had Shinsuke in a spot where he could do something, where he could fucking tell a story, where he could do those strong style strikes onto the wounded back of the champ Seth Rollins, and you would feel something when each kick struck. Seth Rollins sold it well. It it made a skinny older guy in Nakamura. I, I'm blanking on his exact age. He's not an old wrestler, but he's, you know, he does a certain thing, and he has a certain look. And he's making... And they are making that thing and that look look intimidating and powerful. And he comes out, and now he's just speaking in Japanese. And he can understand you, Seth Rollins. And he can understand you, WWE Universe. But you can't understand him. And then it starts getting this veiled thing. Can you just not understand him because he's speaking Japanese? Or can the mercurial, magnetic dynamic, charismatic Shinsuke Nakamura, does he understand something that you don't understand? As that wry smile creeps across his face, I've done it! I've totally sold myself on Shinsuke Nakamura as a heel. I hope that they have another match, to be honest. Uh, We saw on Raw that uh, Rollins called out Nakamura for a rematch, and Shinsuke was the one who said no. The rematch will happen when he wants it to, when he's ready. And, uh, you know, responding in Japanese and all, you know, the fans are just kind of sitting there. It's a heel action. The job of a heel is kind of to take away something from the audience that they're excited for. So you take away the rematch. You take away the promos by speaking in Japanese. You're just taking things away that we're used to and we want and we're ready for. And then you're kind of turning left in a way that we don't like or aren't expecting. Shinsuke is killing it. And they are killing it with him as a heel in this context, I feel like. And it was super cool, the intros. The anime lead-in with Shinsuke Nakamura and Seth Rollins. Now is this anime hero in that context. I thought it was super cute, super cool stuff to get that that over. I gave the match itself. Did I already say this? I don't know if I did. The final score was a 5.2. But I think they can get higher together. And part of it is going to be now they have a, a, a lead-in to a rematch. In a context maybe for a rematch. Potentially, and I think that that match can be even better with uh, those two sharing the screen, frankly, sharing TV time. And that's the thing. When I talk about lead-ins with these matches, people don't always understand. I'm talking about being on TV at the same time, mad at each other. Is really what it boils down to in a lot of ways. I want to see why this matters. I want to see it mattering. I want to be there 
when it's mattering. I want to be there for the keystone moment that these two people or teams or whatever it is decided they just uh, hated each other. And that kind of weirdly happened after the payback main event. That happened on Raw last night when Seth challenged for the rematch and Shinsuke said no. That was kind of the moment. So now let's get them on camera together more and 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 have another rematch. I think it could be good. I like those two. I liked the match. And I liked Payback. I thought it was a good show. But I felt like it... Uh, this is the best way I could put it. It kind of felt like in a lot of the PLEs, the premium live events, their pay-per-views, they, they feel like glammed up versions of the weekly show. A little bit, especially when you have Grayson Waller doing interviews. I mean, that segment was fine. And Jimmy Uso, or excuse me, Jay Uso coming back, that's great. Um, so, you know, you got to get these stories across somehow. I'm the one who's always saying that, to be fair. But, you know, payback was a little bit modest. And I said last week on the show that maybe they were doing a little bit more of a modest thing right now. Maybe for their own internal reasons, we have you know, the lull after SummerSlam or whatever. And, and it may be because they also knew that wrestling fans were paying attention to AEW right now because AEW just had all in and we already broke all that down. And then they had to follow it up a week later with all out. Two massive pay-per-views, two massive shows. I mean, AEW does 10 plus matches per show. It, it's, it's a crazy rate. It's a long show. Um, and how are they going to do two shows of this magnitude in a row? Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to break that down. What was all out like without a championship main event? What was all out like without a strong bill, TV bill? Just being asked to plop down, it felt like to me $50 and watch the show after having just plopped down $50 and watch one of their shows. So if All In felt like it held back, and, and I said that last week on the pod, was it with good reason? Did they get a reward and did they hold back for something in All Out? We will discuss that next after the break. Thank you for joining me, the Greg Flynn here. September 5th on our second ever episode of Rope Break. I ain't never missed my cue. Never ever ever missed my cue. Wrestling fans, we are back. And we have some business to attend to. We just broke down what I thought about WWE Payback and how they... It was a safe show. They played it safe. It was a safe show. It was a good show. It was a safe show. I feel like there were any massive surprises. I guess the one thing I, I maybe would talk about uh, that I forgot from the last segment before we start breaking down All Out uh, would just be the return of John Cena. He's going to spend a few months on the show now. And it looks like... He's uh, he's face-to-face with the Usos. He's face-to-face with Jimmy Uso. We have Jay Uso, the heel, Jimmy Uso, or excuse me, the, the, the face, Jimmy Uso, the heel. Jimmy, the one confronting uh, John Cena. I think uh, we can tell where that's heading, and I'm excited for it. 
We have the groundwork laid for a Jimmy versus Jay uh, confrontation eventually. And I'll be super there when that happens. I'm, I'm not, I'll be candid, I'm not huge fans of the Usos necessarily. I feel like I'm a, little, I'm a little on edge after all the social media comments I got this past week. But I left myself reminders that I just have to be myself and feel the way I feel. I can't feel the way you feel. You've already got that under control. Or maybe you don't. Maybe it's a total, it seems out of control from what I've seen of you. But regardless, the Usos, Jimmy and Jay. <laughs> oh, yeah, wrestling. Jimmy and Jay, that'll be a good match if and when it happens. And Jimmy and John Cena and whatever John Cena's about to do, uh, I'll watch it. <laughs> and I might like it. Who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm the guy who says that when I see Sting in a coffin match, and now we're moving to AEW, um, and when I see uh, the badass Billy Gunn in a six-man match, just feel like I'm watching an old wrestler who's been put into a context where he can be hidden and not have it exposed how limited he is and still get FaceTime with other wrestlers. Like, I, I just, it just feels so transparent to me when I see wrestlers who can't work put in those contexts. I'm not saying Cena can't work or anything like that. I'm not saying Sting can't work necessarily. I'm just saying I'll believe it when I see it with John Cena. And uh, I'm excited to see it. I'm not a hater. But coming to uh, AEW, the big takeaway that I had, if you listen to the first podcast, and I encourage you to do that if you're listening now, go, go find out what I thought of All In and maybe go buy it yourself and watch it yourself. I mean, it wasn't bad. In fact, I, I gave that show a pretty good rating in the end, I feel like. Uh, but the big takeaway from All In for me, I felt like they had what they perceived to be a good main event between MJF and Adam Cole. They felt like they had a title fight that could serve as a main event. And then they felt like they also had a lot of other stories and things going on that would that would culminate in matches. And then they decided to just kind of pause everything going on in the show except the main event. Am I making sense right now? And so they decided to kind of split it. They said, let's take our, our main event and let's put it at the Wembley show so that way it can just have a punch. But then let's kind of take everything else we have that's going to be impactful and interesting and kind of a kind of a thing. And let's put that at all out. So Takesha versus Omega. Let's put that at all out. Starks versus Danielson in a strap match. Let's not only put that at all out. Let's not mention it until the night before. <laughs> Get to that in a minute. I love that match. And I loved what they did as the main event, to be honest, is of All Out. I loved the main event that they ended up going with. I use that term because I almost got the vibe that they weren't for sure what it would be. That being said, when you saw it, it became obvious that it was the main event. The international champion. We talked about Pat Patterson and the Intercontinental Championship. Well, now AEW's version. The international championship held by Orange Cassidy. He's had it for about a year at this point, maybe a little less. He's been defending it damn near weekly. And the main event of All Out was him 
versus John Moxley for that AEW International Championship. And the two both participated in the stadium stampede at All In. And it's a good example of what I'm talking about. You, you could have theoretically got into Cassidy versus Moxley and put that at All In. And if All In's WrestleMania, maybe you should have. But you probably don't also have two shows in a row. Like, I don't think All In and All Out are going to be back-to-back this time next year. That's just a guess, but maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe they feel like they can do this two-for-a-thing. They got the name synced up. They might as well. I don't know. I don't know how they feel about that. Um, But not having – this is where I'm going with this – not having the world title – as a main event of a pay-per-view, that would have been, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that that was the case in AEW history. Um, and I think, as again, I, 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 I am proud. People make fun of me. I am proud of my experience as an E-Fed booker. Holy shit, I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of my track record of creating interesting main events without using the belts or without using your main event championship belt, your world heavyweight championship belt. So they use the international belt. And now we have an AEW homegrown belt with an AEW homegrown star in Orange Cassidy going into the main event of a pay-per-view, and that is just opportunity. Opportunity galore. For Cassidy, for Orange Cassidy, it's an opportunity for Tony Khan and AEW to put on a show that only they can put on, if that makes sense. A lot of promotions, WWE can do a world heavyweight championship fight between two big names, but then you turn around and say, okay, what makes you unique, AEW? Who or what do you have that truly makes you special in this situation? This is the opportunity to have that come up. And I actually wrote all of that down right before I watched the match. I was writing down all my thoughts. And I'm going to I'm going to write down I'm going to read for you what I wrote exactly. I said AW Midcard Belt. This is an AW main event with an AEW Midcard Belt and for these reasons I love it. It's a great opportunity for both these guys. And then they mentioned on the air, and I wrote it, they mentioned on the air that this was Orange Cassidy's first ever main event. I don't believe that in a pay-per-view. I don't believe that to be true. I didn't look it up, but I'm like 99% sure that he and Pac and Kenny Omega had a triple threat for the world title main event pay-per-view. So Cassidy, that wasn't necessarily true. It's neither here nor there. It was still awesome once-in-a-lifetime or first for one, first time in a lifetime, in a way, opportunity to go 1v1 and really carry the moment for Orange Cassidy. So then the question is, how did they do? And I make fun of John Moxley and John Moxley matches as much as anyone. Not a huge fan of brawling. I, I like color. I like seeing blood in matches. There's not enough of it in WWE. But historically, there's so much of it in AEW that Moxley doing it every match, I make fun of Mox for doing it every match, but really it feels like what I'm really picking on is AEW in general for doing it every goddamn show, every match in every show. 
That's really the punchline of those jokes when I make fun of Moxley for bleeding every match. And I think you saw it. And I'll say this before I break down this main event any further, before I break down the strap match, it got leaked that Tony Khan and AEW implemented a rule that everyone needs to, uh, in their matches, all the wrestlers have to notify, I think they have to fill out a form if they're going to plan on bleeding during their match. And there was a long list of other things in those matches, uh, or, or, or various moves off of the top turnbuckle, et cetera, et cetera, working outside of the ring or certain contexts for that, taking bumps outside of the ring, I think. There were a variety of things, and bleeding was on that list, that the that Tony Khan and AEW, whoever's booking these matches, like the actual matches, booking the matches. Am I making sense? You book a show and you book ongoing storylines as kind of a TV writer, but then there's the side of booking that's literally breaking down the moves and the story of the match, and Tony Khan is not doing that. And he wasn't even touching it. And I think that's why there was there was so much bleeding and, and so much just chaos in their shows. And why, why oh, that's such a problem. Letting things be too chaotic. Oh, I could break this down so much. It's sort of like, this is what I'll say. I'll touch on it real quick and then we'll talk about the match. Wrestling sort of like comedy. You need something to serve as the straight man. You need something to serve as the rule set, as the norm, as the comfort zone, as the expectation. And that can literally be a, a human, or the straight man, the human. And it can be a variety of other things. And then you need something to turn it. You need something to create the chaos that causes you to be shocked. And in the case of comedy, laugh. And in the case of wrestling, be in awe. Because what's there to be in awe of if you are seeing blood and moonsaults off the top turnbuckle multiple times per show on free TV? You've removed the impact. And in a way, you've removed the straight man. So what is the straight man in professional wrestling? It's the referee and the rules. It's the show itself. And it can be individual wrestlers who also work um, a more traditional way as well. But the structure of the show and the feeling of watching like a league, an ongoing promotion, an ongoing league, again, where wins and losses matter, where what happens matters, and where the brass of the league give a fuck and enforce their rules so that they can get what they perceive to be fair outcomes, like UFC would, right? And you look at like disqualifications are real common in WWE, at least it sends the message that the, quote, authority figures of WWE are trying to create a certain thing in their wrestling promotion on a fictional level. Like the fictional characters are going for this. I hope I'm making sense. So that straight man in AEW hasn't existed. It's been nothing but comedy. It's been nothing but clowns. And there hasn't been anyone to take the pie in the face. It's just been clowns throwing pies at other clowns. And now that they've tightened the ship... 
And now that they've said, okay, you got to let us know if you're going to cut. You got to let us know if you're going to do these things. Now that they've done that, when you see a Moxley match, and when you see Orange Cassidy coated in blood, and when you see Moxley slugging it out with Cassidy, and you see these men laying it all out on the floor, and then when they do start brawling, and they do start working on the outside, it means something. It stands out. It's different than what you've been watching the previous nine matches of these giant shows. And then it can have an impact. We have a straight man. And the straight man is the fact that you don't fucking bleed every single match. You don't hit each other with steel chairs every single match. This is wrestling. This is combat sports. And that stuff is just happening to create something interesting, to create events, to create a pop. Okay, the tightening of that ship, I think, is a big reason why this match was so good as a main event. And I was, I was low-key proud to be somebody who's been watching AEW uh, almost since day one, basically since day two, I would say. I've been watching AEW, and this show actually made me fucking proud. Because it was tight. And there were stories told in the context of the show. The one sticking out right now to me is is Samoa Joe bumping into um, MJF. MJF has a match with Adam Cole. And then Samoa Joe comes out for his match, the next match, too early. So that way he can start a little shit with MJF. Shit like that hasn't been happening on AEW. And it was a way to tell a story in the context of this is a show and these are humans showing up here. It's like scripted shit that weirdly feels way less scripted because it actually kind of makes sense in the context and in the context of the suspension of disbelief going down rabbit holes here instead of talking about matches, but I care about this shit care about my wrestling. So my final score in the main event, Cassidy versus Moxley, I give it a 7.6. It's higher than I gave the cage match. And now you may be knowing, if you've been listening uh, the whole way through or watching live on Twitch the whole way through, I said that we had our first 8 out of 10 match. You may be starting to have a guess at what it could be. We're running out of options now that neither Mox and Orange Cassidy or the cage match are the one to get the 8. But uh, I, I, this isn't like a knock. Uh, I'm just trying to uh, play the role of teaser. I thought the main event was phenomenal. Um, and, and it spoke to the context of the whole show. It was an AEW show. It just felt that way in the DNA, but for better. Whereas All In felt like the bad side of an AEW show, where it's just sort of like a super indie. And it's like, look at all these different types of things we can do. They're very different, and they're very cool, and they're very different. (laughs) Like, from each other, from what you're used to seeing in wrestling, if you haven't been paying attention to Lucha and Indy and AEW, and what you see on WWE, and just different from each other, match to match, I feel like if there's too much variation, or if the difference is just in the chaos... Well, then it stops making sense. It feels disjointed. And that's how All In felt. And All Out this past weekend was the exact 
opposite. The next match I want to talk about was Kenny Omega versus Konosuke Takeshita. And this was my kind of match. This was a 1v1 match where it wasn't about chairs. It wasn't about brawling. It wasn't about seeing who could bleed the most. It was just about two guys who knew how to wrestle, knew how to execute their type of moves, their style, and then do it in a way where I could suspend my disbelief uh, I thought this was a phenomenal match. This is exactly the type. I would love to see this type of match all 10 matches. And maybe not all 10 matches. Maybe 8 of the 10. And then you can have a tag and you can have a death match of some sort. But this was phenomenal. This was storytelling. This was storytelling in the ring. This was which one of them's stronger, which one of them's quicker. Wow, pound for pound, they are equals. They even physically, in terms of muscle and bone structure, I mean, they're basically spitting images of each other on those levels. I thought it was fantastic. Don Callis is is the perfect manager in this context for Takeshita. Um, I, I loved it. I think Takeshita's wrestling as a heel was really good. Uh, Kenny Omega wrestled great. They did kind of hold back some things. I feel like they kind of had to. Um, but I enjoyed it, man. I watched it with my wife. She loved it. Amanda rated it a 12 out of 10. Which is also higher than I think she gave the, the cage match. She gave that a 10 out of 10. Amanda's ratings are far more interesting than mine. <laughs> she gives the cage match a 10 out of 10. She gives Omega and Takeshita a 12 out of 10. I gave Omega and Takeshita 7.3. Uh, I, I just would love nothing more than to see pay-per-view cards filled with this level of singles wrestling. This is the type of work that we saw uh, in a way is, is, is slower and different. Different wrestlers but in a way, the same type of thing that we saw from Punk and Samoa Joe. They got, e they got each other over as heavyweights. They got e each other over as big hitters. They got each other over as top guys, as main eventers, doing main event things, going blow for blow, pound for pound in a fight. Now, the, the style of fight when you talk about Punk and Joe or Omega and Takesha is very different. And I liked the Omega Takesha match better. In general, I would probably prefer the style of a Samoa Joe versus a Punk more. But this was a phenomenal match. We are picking the nits big time when it comes to that. Uh, I was super entertained. I loved it. And I loved watching Kenny Omega fall on his neck some more. Uh... I can't even really say that. I mean, I love it, but I love it because I squirm and hate it. I worry about how many bumps that guy takes on his neck and how eager he is to fall on his neck. I've literally been commenting on that. I feel like his whole career, it's just you keep watching this guy. It's scary. It's scary. to. Th I don't want to think about it. I, I, I would love to see him find a new way to make me gasp than thinking that He's going to fucking snap his neck every show. Every time he takes a German suplex or these fucking tiger drivers and all this shit. Uh, I, I kind of take off for that. Like if it starts feeling like this is a real, real bad idea, 
we're not suspending disbelief. We're just being idiots at a certain point. But that that's I'm, again, I'm getting harsh. I loved this match, Omega and Takesha. And it leads me into uh what was the match of the weekend. And we've run out of candidates, I think. There were some good matches on the show that we can talk about. But in terms of candidates for an eight or higher match, we've run out of candidates. There's only one match left that could be approaching that or have any dream of approaching that. And it was my man Ricky Starks against my other man. Brian Danielson, the American Dragon with guest commentator, my third man. I like lots of men. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So it was Starks versus Danielson in a strap match. And uh, this thing was fucking gruesome. I got to take a moment and remember it here. I mean, this thing was fucking gruesome. The imagery of this match. The close-ups of the face shots in this fucking match. So the premise of the match is Ricky Starks can't stop hitting uh, bitches with a belt. Every time he sees a motherfucker, he's got to slap him around with a leather belt. Sometimes that motherfucker uh, in the show has been Ricky the 70-year-old Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. It's so confusing because Ricky Starks, there's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and then there's the American Dragon Brian Danielson. I see why they did it, but it makes it confusing to talk about. So uh, Ricky Starks keeps beating up Ricky Steamboat with a belt. He keeps beating beating up various motherfuckers with a belt. So then he says, I'm going to beat you up with a belt during the pay-per-view. And next thing we know, Brian Danielson is like, I'm the dragon, not Ricky Steamboat. You're going to belt me up. Let's get tied together with a belt. So then they do. And I thought they teased the beginning of that match great. They slow played it. They made Ricky. It was so great when my my wife, I watched it twice. And the second time I watched it with my wife. And Amanda goes, are they trying to make Ricky look a little intimidated in this moment? I was like, yeah, that's kind of the idea. It's like arrogance in life. Not to rat anyone out here. Arrogance in life is a cover for insecurity, is it not? And good wrestling can work that way. And your heels, your arrogant heels can come across that way when it's done right. So Ricky, slow playing the beginning of the match, is working as a heel on multiple levels. He's taking away the match and the start of the match from the fans who are excited for it. And so it's a moment for a heel to slow play and take something away from the audience. Um, And he's taking something away from... Uh, Ricky, uh, or excuse me, Brian Danielson, and he's he's slow playing the eventual reward that we hope we're all gonna get. So they finally get chained together with the strap. And uh, as a quick aside, man, these matches seem so much safer than dog collar matches, and they can uh, produce the same amount of just disgusting, deathmatchy violence and mayhem without having something around these guys' necks. I'm a big strap match fan, and I am not a, uh, a dog collar match fan ever again. I, I, I hope I don't have to watch more of those, or if I do, I don't know. I don't, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll love it when I do, but I hate it right now. This, this was a safer way, it felt like, to do the same thing. 
And uh, the match starts with Ricky uh, Starks beating the shit out of Brian Danielson with the belt, and they're focused on the strap. They're focused on the belt. And finally, Brian Danielson makes his babyface comeback. And the part I'm trying to, or I'm thinking about right now, is when Starks was hanging upside down in the corner turnbuckle. And Brian Danielson starts beating the shit out of him, finally, with the strap. And some of those lashes starting landing on the face of Ricky Starks. And you could see that that was not meant to be. And I felt like I could kind of see that maybe Brian Danielson was okay with that because by this point in the match, he was already lacerated and coated in his own blood from the strap beatings. This match was fucking gruesome. And I, what I told my wife when she was watching it and afterwards, what made it so cool for me, to be honest, is they did a good job, I felt like, making it this like gruesome thing still getting over like wrestling moves, still getting over the fact that this was a wrestling match and they were able to transition back and forth between some wrestling vibes and wrestling energy with this gory strap match, death match energy. Which is why I was proud to give this match the first ever eight in the history of rope break. In fact, it did even better than that. I gave this match an 8.1. Ricky Starks, Brian Danielson, I felt like, I mean, they kind of stole the show. You mocks and Orange Cassidy. I'll tell you who really stole the show. This is who really stole the show and whose night it was. It was AEW's night. And it was, it was a coming out party for uh, kind of what constitutes homegrown talent for AEW. These guys had lives and careers prior to AEW. But this was a coming out party for the homegrown talent of Orange Cassidy. This show was a coming out party for the homegrown Ricky Starks. This was AEW's way of saying we can do incredible professional wrestling with our guys. Like... I hate to call them this, with the bullpen guys. We sent the starters out, right? We sent out our starting pitchers, Adam Cole and MJF, for all in. And they had to get us through the first week. And they had to get us through this 82,000, our first ever WrestleMania. 82,000 fans, biggest wrestling show ever. But then we had to call in the bullpen. We had to call in some relievers. Because we got two shows in a week. And... You have to have relievers. You have to have a bullpen. You have to have a lot of main event guys, a number of main event guys built and ready for moments like this. And they've been building them, and they got built, and they got stamps of approval uh, at All Out, I felt like. So I feel like everything negative I said about All In, I feel like I'm vindicated because I said at the time, all you AEW marks who've been giving me shit, I said at the time that it felt like they were holding back. It was the stadium stampede. It was six-man tag action. Uh, it was another six-man tag. It, it just felt like they were holding back. And, and you look at the way you book these matches, 
one of the ones they kind of didn't hold back in a way was the tag team. I felt like it was rushed. That's what I said last week on the pod between FTR and the Bucks. Well, then this week, those two are uh, at All Out in an uh, eight-man tag match that I really enjoyed, to be honest. I Would I give that match? Uh, FTR and the Bucks teaming up. That had a great story against the Bullet Club. Uh, Bullet Club Gold. I gave that match a five point nine. That match was totally good too. Um, but you kind you can't you can't have these guys do the main event match or the big payoff match every week, every show. There's like a give and a take. There has to be teases. There has to be epilogues, or there can be epilogues, and then connections to what the next story is going to be or the next chapter, et cetera, et cetera. It's just this constant creative process. So it felt like what I was saying was that All In held back some of those ideas, some of those matches, some of those payoffs, and it felt like it held back too many of them. Or maybe they just didn't have enough in total. But then it all out, I didn't even really notice the lack of the world championship at the show. Uh, MJF and Adam Cole in the opener was fun. That was a fun match with a fun little story attached to it with MJF getting hurt, coming back. Um, So I didn't even really notice the lack of the world title in the main event. And then, you know, halfway through that, once we're past Starks and Danielson, once we're past or halfway through Orange Cassidy and Mox, I really wasn't thinking about it. I was glued to that main event. I was glued to a lot of those matches. This show was way better than All In. Maybe having your biggest megastar attack one of your beloved young guys in Jungle Boy and then shove a bunch of monitors onto the onto the president, head booker, founder, and money man, Tony Khan, maybe that set a bad vibe on top of maybe some nervous energy that already existed for All In, on top of maybe some poor booking choices for All In. And you combine all that and then you got All In. And maybe it all out was AW not just getting back to form, but... but back to progressing what they're really trying to build here and who they're really trying to build. They're trying to build their own guys. They're trying to build their bullpen. So that's what I thought of All Out. I thought it was a phenomenal show. Fantastic. So here's what we're going to do, wrestling fans. We are now on the home stretch. We are gearing up for our final break of the show. And when we come back, I'm going to rank these three pay-per-views that we've had tell you what order I would rank them in, best to worst out of shows. We're going to talk about the newly announced Wrestle Dream coming to Seattle October 1st. It's right around the corner. And I'm going to give a little tease for next show's book review. Thank you for joining me, the Greg Flynn, here September 5th on Rope Break. I ain't never missed my Wrestling fans, thank you for joining me this week, listening, watching live on Twitch.tv, Tuesdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific at Twitch.tv slash WetMeWrestling. You can also just head over straight to WetMeWrestling.com, find out what's going on in the world. Make sure you follow on Instagram at WetMeWrestling. You'll see clips from the show, Reels, they're called. 
I know about reels. I'm young and cool. You can see reels from this show. I also post uh, a little agenda for Rope Break the day before. If you want to find out what we're going to be talking about week to week, we are on the home stretch, our final segment of the day. I want to talk briefly about AEW's upcoming show. First, I want to uh, kind of just, just, just for fun. And this is all just for fun. And see, here's the thing. Wrestling fans will, they get mad at me in the comments that this is just for fun. This is just entertainment. It's just for fun. Well, well, talking about it is fun too. Did you know about that? (laughs) Did you know about sharing your opinions and feelings with with like-minded people and people who aren't like-minded? You can do that and that's fun too. And that's why I have them. That's why I like to rank things and do this match rate. It's just an excuse to talk about things and break down what you saw. I think I think I got a little bit of a reputation on Instagram and TikTok as a hater this past week, and I am no such thing. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. I'm going to rank the these three shows. I said uh, last week, All In was the uh, only show of the week last week. I I said I gave that show a 6.5, even though if you had averaged all the ratings together, you would have gotten a 5.0. I still gave that show a 6.5 because fans matter, context matters, and things can be greater than the sum of their parts when done even a little bit right. And so the, the thing that went right there was the moment and the fans. And there were a couple of good matches. So I gave All In a 6.5. If I were to rank these three shows from top to bottom, or, or, or rather or rather from best to worst, uh, All Out was easily the best show out of these three. It just showed you that you didn't need, you don't need guys who, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it, came from WWE to main event your shit. Or or the like or or Kenny Omega. It's like a WWE guy or Kenny Omega uh, has. Don't quote me on that, but has largely been the anchors and MJF now and MJF of course and MJF of course and and you know he's a perfect champ for this all out show that felt like an AEW show. You know they they they've made MJF already made. Uh, that's big. I mean he's he's phenomenal. He's continuing to get more phenomenal. But then they made Orange Cassidy, to use the word again, and they made Ricky Starks at All Out, and they're making their guys, they're building their guys, and that's what gets me so excited. When I discovered Orange Cassidy two years ago, or whatever it was, uh, when I first started watching AEW, I said, this is a guy who can be world champion. Like, I like bigger wrestlers. I, 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 I resonate with Vince McMahon and getting big guys in the door. They, a certain look is super rewarding. Rewarding. I speak the words. <laughs> rewarding. And the proof I use is the way the audience popped it all out for the Miro and Hobbs match. I didn't talk about that one. But the audience ate that shit up. And as I was watching it, and they weren't doing anything... I don't want to be harsh, truly like special, but the audience loved that match. I think it's just the fact that fucking like it's, it's a performance. And if you're going to hire an actor for a role, they need to look the part. 
And just having guys who look the part is important. But I'm saying all that to say that it's not necessary. And there's always been guys who kind of stood out from that cliche or stereotype who've had amazing runs, amazing careers. And I was like, Orange Cassidy's going to be one of them. And I thought the stadium stampede, we got our teaser. And then at All Out, we, we just got the official sentence we got the official proclamation that Orange Cassidy could be a real deal main event wrestler I hope I'm right about that I hope he continues to grow and and have a variety of different styles and matches uh going forward he's done that with the international belt now let's do it with guys I've heard of I don't want to be harsh but yeah let's let's bring some more oomph to it same with Ricky Starks. So All Out was the best of the three. Uh, I would say All In would be next. I think All In was better than Payback, and that is just going to be such apples and oranges, too, uh, when it comes to wrestling, in my opinion. Just two different approaches to shows. I mean, it was WrestleMania 1 for one of them. Like, they were trying to figure out this new thing, and then for the other one it was, let's use the formula that we've used forever. Uh, to create PLEs, and it just like felt a little bit like they used this proven formula and they created a, a product that they've created a million times, and it's why I said Payback felt a little bit like one of the weekly TV shows. It's one of the downsides to having tighter creative control and a tighter way of producing your show uh, is that that's going to happen sometimes. So All Out, man, I, I'd probably give that show on whole – Somewhere between a 7 and a 7.5. Maybe like a 7.2. It's coming to me live in real time. And then I would give payback. I don't know. Oh, I'm going to be harsh on payback. Like a 4.8. Oh, 4.9. Something like that. But it was a good 4.9. Like these scores. We got we to gotta keep working through the kinks on these match ratings. Or maybe I just got to keep training you guys. Because that's a decent score. I had fun. I enjoyed Payback. I enjoyed All In. And I really, really liked All Out. I, that, was like, that was like watching a movie that really stuck with me. That was a much better wrestling show on a variety of fronts, in my opinion. And the one that we have to look forward to now that got announced it All Out is Wrestle Dream. Wrestle Dream. Wrestle Dream. October 1st in Seattle, Washington, which I will tease is relatively close to where I live. And tickets go on sale in three days. So there's a chance we could have rope break content and wet meat wrestling content from Wrestle Dream October 1st. And I found out something about this show that I want to talk about now. And this will be the final thing we talk about this week uh, that got me even more excited and made me want to be there even more. Which was that this show was thought up, dreamed up, if you will, by Tony Khan in response to the passing of Antonio Inoki one year ago. I believe on the same date, if I'm not mistaken, October 1st. If you don't know Antonio Inoki, he was the founder of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, and he is easily 
one of maybe I think he's easily the greatest visionary maybe ever in professional wrestling. Uh, and what really inspired me as I learn more more about Antonio Noki's story uh, is is that he wasn't afraid, I think, of looking silly to people. He wasn't afraid of looking foolish to people. He was willing to try things and push the boundaries of what wrestling could be. It was storytelling mixed with combat sports, and he wanted to try to push that envelope uh, in every way he could. So he fought Muhammad Ali, and it was a total fucking disaster. And they couldn't even agree. This match had been booked for months and they were going to raise all this money and I think it was going to go to charity at the time. This was in the 70s. Um, And it was just this big thing. Antonio Inoki, a wrestler from Japan, fighting Muhammad Ali. Like, and really, if you think about it, this is like a precursor to MMA. This is pre-MMA. This is pre-UFC. And the rule set that they agreed on was that Antonio could do kicks because he wanted to be able to kick, but he had to do it lying from his back. So if you go and watch the match, the whole thing is just Antonio Inoki laying on his back, throwing kind of jab kicks at Muhammad Ali to keep distance so he doesn't have to get punched in the face effectively. And largely nothing but that happens at any point. And it's an example of what happens when you push further than maybe you're supposed to or other people say you're supposed to. Events like that happen and they get made fun of and they get labeled as a disaster or silly But for me personally, when I uh, read about that match and when I watch that match and when I think about Antonio Inoki, I think he walked away from that just taking notes. I tried something new and this is what I learned and tomorrow I'm going to try something else new. And and that's going to be a disaster or beautiful and people are going to love it or hate it. And then the next day I'm going to try something else new. And that was the energy that Antonio Inoki brought uh, to professional wrestling. And it's why it got me even more excited for Wrestle Dream in Seattle, close to me. I got to be at that show, boys. So hopefully I will be. I think think it can happen. Iron out the kinks, make it work for the family. And I think it can happen uh, because I I would love to be at that show. And uh, a little teaser for next week. Book review is going to come back next week with a book that's going to get you guys up to speed on New Japan Pro Wrestling and a book that's going to get you guys up to speed on who Antonio Inoki even is and why I am emotional and excited for Wrestle Dream now and why I get emotional telling stories about Antonio Inoki and where I'm even learning these things myself. That is on episode three of Rope Break, seven days from this recording. That's going to be September 12th, 2023, one week from today. Hey, thanks for going on this ride with me today. If you're watching live or on YouTube, don't forget, you can get this podcast in audio form on all major audio platforms. And if you're watching live, don't forget to subscribe and support on your favorite podcast platform. 
YouTube.com slash Wet Meat Wrestling, the live show, Tuesdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific, on Twitch.tv slash Wet Meat Wrestling, wetmeatwrestling.com, and the WMWE Fed returns this Friday with a stacked show that includes the return of the world champion, Satoshi. Ooh! Hey, thank you, guys. I had a blast today. I hope you did, too. We will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. I ain't never missed my cue. Never, ever, ever missed my cue. Never miss my